everybody, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can search Facebook, or actually, you can just go to facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod, or you can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up, or at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also follow subscribe, whatever the thing is, wherever you're listening to this, uh, definitely uh, subscribe to the podcast so you can uh, keep up to date with new episodes and new content that we put out. And also, uh, if you feel so inclined, leave us a rating or review, and that really helps us out. So I really appreciate that. Uh, I just want to say that, uh, you know, a belated Merry Christmas. I took that week off. I mentioned that I might just do a later, I might just postpone uh, last week's episode and for it be... Let's try words again. Uh, I, I said I might postpone next week or last week, um, last week's episode to, um, you know, maybe later in the week, uh, just to see how it was. I ended up just taking it off um, because we had my daughter all week last week. We didn't get home until like late Monday, so it was one of those things where, well, I'll, I'm gonna have to come up with all these notes and all of this content to try to knock it out before Tuesday. So there was just a lot going on, but what that allowed me to do is it allowed me to find five movies that I was really excited to talk about, for better or for worse, and uh, that's what I'm here to do on this episode. I'm also, in just a few minutes, I'm going to give you a little information about what we plan to do uh, this year, 2022. Happy New Year, everybody, and a belated Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, whatever it is that you uh, celebrate. We love you all the same. And, uh, you know, I, I was uh, coming up with the 2022 schedule today. I was talking to Joe Shearer about uh, knocking out some stuff, and that'd be fun. And then um, before we get into actual reviews, I do want to talk about one specific movie, and uh, I will do that in a moment. Uh, but the 2022 schedule, I'm probably going to say 2021 a bunch on accident. I mean 2022. But the uh, schedule is, of course, today I'm talking about a series of movies. That is The French Dispatch, Mass, The Matrix Resurrections, Come On, Come On, and Licorice Pizza, the Paul Thomas Anderson film. I actually just saw that yesterday. Very excited about it. And then um, uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to talk a little bit about No Sudden Move, which is the new Steven Soderbergh film. Uh, It's not a real review. I just kind of want to talk about it just a little bit. So I'm giving you a little extra there. Um, but on January 18th, that's two weeks from today, or at least when this episode drops, uh, Joe Shearer and I, and probably another guest, but it might just be Joe and I, uh, we are going to start our best films of 2021. And I know what you're thinking. It's 2022 now. Why didn't we already do this? Well, I pride myself in being like the last people to do a top 10 of 2021 or of the last year, you know. Last year, we did it a month after, but what it does is it gives me a chance to see films like Licorice Pizza, for example, uh, and things like that, because I get late screeners sometimes. Uh, Sometimes I have to go to the theater. Licorice Pizza was in Indianapolis. I live in Lafayette. That's an hour away. So, uh, you know, I, you know, I had to get there at some point, plus with all the holidays and everything, it was really difficult to get there. So, uh, yeah, this little extra time, these few weeks are actually really crucial for me to fit in a lot of uh, movies that I'm excited to see. And a few that are on the docket right now that I plan to see before we do the top 10. So I have my hands full for the next uh, for the next few weeks. I need to see uh, Leos Carax's uh, Annette. 
I need to finish. I started it. I, I fucking hate starting movies and stopping them. Okay? I hate it. But in this case, I just had to. Because when we were in uh, our hometown, uh, we were in a hotel for like the holidays. And I tried watching it on my laptop, and it just got too late. I got too tired. And then I just didn't have a chance to watch it again. And that movie is Kenneth Branagh's uh, Belfast, which a lot of people feel is too... Uh, I've, I've seen the word saccharine used for it. It's very, very sweet and and whatever. I The first half an hour that I've seen, about 37 minutes or whatever, I think is awesome. So we'll see how that goes. I need to see Black Widow and all the MCU stuff, Shang-Chi. I doubt I'll get around to Spider-Man just because it's in theaters and it would be difficult for me to do that uh, before the time. Maybe I can. Uh, I need to see Coda, uh, Drive My Car, which is the Japanese film, uh, The Hand of God, uh, The Killing of Two Lovers, Ridley Scott's The Last Detail, uh, Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, um, a movie called The Lost Daughter, uh, a movie called passing. Uh, I'm going to try to find a copy of Petite Maman, uh, which has been on several top tens. I'm going to be watching Sean Baker's Red Rocket. I'm going to be watching what has been considered a uh, mumblecore movie. If you're not familiar with mumblecore, they're usually really kind of like low quality, uh, not not in terms of content, but just like, uh, you know, pretty, it's like a lo-fi independent talking movie, you know, about, you know, people's lives and drama, um, but uh, uh, really heavily influenced by John Cassavetes, which we've done a marathon on the show. I really love Cassavetes, but Slow Machine is a movie that came out in 2021 that people have been calling, or 2020, I think it was in the festival circuit, uh, but it came out and was considered in 2021, I believe, and uh, Slow Machine is a mumblecore movie from what I've read. I haven't seen it yet. It's like 71 minutes long, super short. Anyways, I also need to see Spencer, the movie about uh, Princess Diana. Uh, I need to see the tragedy of Macbeth probably is not going to happen just because I'm not going to be able to get to Indianapolis, and that's the only place I know it's playing around me. Um, the Worst Person in the World is another one that unless I can get a screener within the next couple weeks, I probably won't get to that one because that one's not coming out until this year as a wide release, even though it was considered in 2021. Um I also want to watch a movie called About Endlessness. I need to watch Barb and Star go to Vista del Mar, which is fucking stupid looking to me. But I, it's been on like top 10 list and people love this movie. So I'm going to straight up give it a shot. I actually uh, really like, what's her name? Um, uh, Kristen Wiig. I like Kristen Wiig a lot. So, hey, maybe it'd be awesome. Who knows? I'm, I'm willing to give it the old college try. Uh, but my point is there are a lot of movies, and there are more, but uh, you know, I have like a good solid 20. I'm not going to get through them all, but I have a solid 20 that I'm like, man, if I could get through these, this would be so tight. Uh, so that's the plan. Uh, oh, uh, uh, Identifying Features is also another movie I'd like to see. I'm also real low on documentaries, guys. I mean, th there are some there are some movies like uh, The World's a Little Blurry, the uh, Billie Eilish movie, Biggie. I got the story to uh, I got a story to tell. Um, those two are. I just don't imagine them being like top ten worthy, and I just can't prioritize them, even though they're probably awesome. Um, there are several others I'm like looking through my list on Letterboxd right now, which is a private list for now, but. Um, but I have like a whole bunch of stuff on here. There's just so much to see, and I'm going to be cramming as much in as possible until I feel comfortable with the number I end with to do my top 10. 
So uh, Joe and I are going to be taking, it'll probably be a double feature there, so part one and part two, uh, five films apiece for Joe and I and, and possibly uh, a friend that we bring along. Uh, so January 18th and January 25th uh, will be that. Now, um, next week is a surprise, so I'm not even going to talk about it. Um, and that's pretty much January. So, um, and then the first show in February, Joe's going to come back, and we're going to do our most anticipated of 2022. If you know anything about film, you know generally, this is not universally true, but generally nothing happens until about March <laughs> or later, okay, <laughs> for each year. It's kind of like the carryover. Uh, the first third of the year is like carryover, you know, from 2021. Stuff's released in January and February that was considered the year before. And those are often kind of the big hits. But sometimes you get those uh, random gems that pop up from the year that you are in. And so uh, hopefully I'll be able to see some 2022 movies. Um, and maybe I'll share those on the podcast as well. So all that to say, we have a lot of good stuff coming up here soon. And uh, I also, uh, back to this uh, Steven Soderbergh movie, No Sudden Move. Again, this isn't like a review. I just want to talk about this for a second. Now, I, I just want to run down because I was going to do a review of this, and then I had too many other movies that I was more interested in. But I do want to mention this because I didn't know about this movie until like a month and a half ago. And uh, it's called No Sudden Move. It came out last year. It's directed by Steven Soderbergh. If you're not familiar with Soderbergh, where in the fuck have you been? This guy is, he's just one of those dudes that has made like a bunch of movies that you've seen and uh, you just don't know the name if you don't know him. You know what I mean? Uh, but I'll, I'll read a few movies that Soderbergh's done um, that that uh, you might know. So uh, let me pull it up here. So, you know, he started off, he kind of had his breakout with Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Uh, and then several years later in the late 90s, he did Out of Sight in the Limey and Aaron Brockovich, was, which was probably the biggest movie that he did. Uh, up to that point, Aaron Brockovich. And then he did the award-winning masterpiece Traffic in 2000. And then he started the Oceans uh, series. So Oceans 11 in 2001, Oceans 12 in 2004, and Oceans 13 in 2007. I remember really loving 11. I can't speak to anything else. He did the remake of Solaris, uh, the remake of the Tarkovsky film. Um, he did the Good German he did uh, the Che Guevara movies, Shea Part 1 and Shea Part 2, The Girlfriend Experience, The Informant, Contagion, Haywire, Magic Mike, Side Effects. I mean, this dude is all over the place. All of the, like, I rarely see a Soderbergh movie that's not good. Like, at, at the very least, it's good. So you should, uh, I, I say all that to say, No Sudden Move is surprisingly good. And I kept seeing a lot of, like, uh, mid-tier ratings for this movie. But check out, check this out. So it's written by a guy named Ed Solomon. The cast, check this out. Don Cheadle, Brendan Fraser. When was the last fucking time you saw Brendan Fraser? Come on, dude. Uh, Benicio Del Toro, uh, Kieran Culkin, Amy uh, Simetz. I, I think it's Simetz, but it could be Simetz. Um, but uh, David Harbour. David Harbour is the dude uh, from Stranger Things, the sheriff. Uh, and the kind of father figure to the uh, to the magical, I forget her name off the top of my head, but the point is the, the magical young lady. Um, but David Harbour is awesome here. Uh, Julia Fox is in it. And uh, a nice uncredited surprise cameo by a probably the biggest star uh, of all of them. Um, but he's completely uncredited to my knowledge. He might be on IMDb, but don't even don't waste your time. Don't look him up. Like, just be surprised because I was like, holy shit, that's that guy. 
Uh, and I've actually been surprised by this actor before in other movies that I didn't know that they were in. Uh, but it, man, this cast is crazy. Not the biggest cast uh, of the of uh, the year. Uh, that probably goes to the first film I'm going to be covering in a bit. Uh, but this was released in July. I didn't hear about this till like November. Okay, Brendan Fraser. I didn't know I loved this guy. He looks so different now. He was like the hottie hunk in like the Mummy or whatever, and now he's just kind of this like husky like bug-eyed weird dude and he's fucking awesome this guy i mean i absolutely brendan fraser is like one of my favorite things about this movie and he's not in it near enough for me uh really great don Cheadle's voice is so good like don Cheadle himself is good but don Cheadle often plays don Cheadle as different people these days, you know, like he has a very specific, you know, like the war machine in the MCU and stuff like that. That's just like Don Cheadle talking like Don Cheadle. He, dude, this guy fits the period, the time period of this movie. Don Cheadle's voice is just so good. It's it doesn't, it's not caricaturish at all, but there's just like a raspiness and like a cadence that he speaks with. God damn. I love this guy. Um, but also, there are like really interesting things. I know this is a bit disheveled. I'm just giving you some quick thoughts here because uh, I encourage you to go check this out. Uh, he, uh, Soderbergh chooses to use these like super wide angles and like the edges of the of the screen are like distorted. You know what I mean? The edges of the frame. But it's like super interesting to me. <laughs> I don't know why. It's pretty trivial. Um but uh, I just like noticed it, and I thought it was cool. Another thing is, uh, uh, there's like almost like a Coen Brothers element to it. You know, a, 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 um, maybe something closer actually to a film in the vein of like a Shane Black neo noir, like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or The Nice Guys. Um, you know, uh, it really feels like kind of a return to form for Soderbergh. Actually, you know, exploring um, the ensemble cast again, which is pretty cool. Not a huge cast. It's no like Ocean's Eleven or Twelve or any of those. But it does go back to that kind of like out of sight, the limey Aaron Brock, not Aaron Brockovich, sorry, uh, Ocean's Eleven type movie for Soderbergh, where he, you know, later he got into these movies like Side Effect, Side Effects, um, and uh, Let Them All Talk, and The Girlfriend Experience, you know, like these, these uh, a certain type of movie. And this movie kind of goes back to this ensemble cast, but the, the thing, the trick about it is the cast is great, of course. But the story is all the fuck over the place. <laughs> I mean, it is convoluted as you can get. But it feels so classic because if you remember the Oceans trilogy, we'll say, and I, I only liked Eleven mostly, but and I have to see it again, have a new opinion. But the Oceans movies, one thing that you can expect, especially from the first one, is what you think is happening is never what's actually happening. What you think is happening is plan A, but then they actually are doing plan B, but one person is actually doing plan C, but then unbeknownst to everyone else, plan D is happening. You know what I mean? Like it kind of jumps around and you're kind of taken, you know, kind of taken for a loop there. This movie is that in spades. I mean, it, like what the what you think the movie is from the beginning, which is fucking awesome, and the first half an hour is done. That story's done. And I, I just remember like, what in the hell is about to happen? I had no idea. And that's exciting. So for as convoluted as it gets, and I mean that as a criticism, I mean, it gets so convoluted, it almost like holds the movie back. 
but my God, is it fun. I don't know. I, I would say this is probably my favorite Soderbergh film since the Shea films. Um, maybe something like, I actually remember liking Contagion. I never saw Logan Lucky, so I can't speak to that. I haven't seen some of his newer stuff like The Laundromat and whatever. But um, uh, based on the last stuff that I saw, I mean, we're going back to like the late 2000s. 15 years, basically, 14, something like that. So, uh, yeah, this movie is pretty awesome. Uh, and there, there's a critic named Susan Granger uh, from the AF, or AWFJ Women on Film uh, publication, whatever that is. I'm actually unfamiliar. I don't mean that to be dismissive. But, uh, you know, she says, it's like trying to assemble a complicated jigsaw puzzle in which you've complicated, or in which you've completely lost interest. What, Susan? Come on. I'm like, I'm like watching this movie, and I had read that before I watched it. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this is just going to be a mess. And I'm watching, I'm like, why is this hard to follow? Like, by the end, like I said, it gets unnecessarily complex, and it's convoluted. But that's only like the last 20 minutes, probably. This is super easy to follow. The end is still not hard to follow, but you do have to start like putting it together. Like, oh, wait, what just happened? Uh, because again, it kind of gets away from Soderbergh a bit. Uh, but I, I think if anything, it is not hard to follow, but rather there are a ton of layers to this movie and each layer is like an added twist of tension. I think you should go check this out. Again, I, I don't mean for this to be like a review. I just wanted to give a few quick thoughts. And it ended up being as long as a fucking review. But the point is, uh, this movie was really fun. Um, I had a great time with it. I'm going to look it up real quick. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm going to look it up. I want to see uh, where it's streaming. Because I actually watched it wherever it's streaming. Here, I'm almost there. HBO Max. So if you have H... Excuse me. If you have HBO Max... Go check out No Sudden Move. It's a fun time. Like I said, it gets convoluted, but this is just a fun movie. All right? And I, I will give you this. The movie starts this way. Benicio Del Toro and Don Cheadle and Kieran Culkin all get roped in to this scheme, essentially, that, uh, what's that homie's name? Brendan Fraser has put together at at the request of a higher up that everyone knows, but we, the audience, don't know this person. But based on the character's responses, you know this is a big a big wig, big guy. And the job is, Kieran Culkin is going to take, uh, what's that other dude's name? Uh, David Harbour's character to his work to steal some documents that uh, David Harbour's boss has, okay? Meanwhile... Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro are waiting at David Harbour's house with his family, his wife and two kids, and they have guns and masks on. And the masks are hilarious to me because it's almost like Zorro where it's like, well, that's obvious. Like, how could they take that off and you not know that it's the same guy? Because they just have their eyes covered. Like, so I just love it. But anyways, and that's like the premise of the movie. That's where it kicks off. Now, it does not end there. But, man, it, like, all of these twists keep happening. And I found it, like I said, as kind of a screw to build the tension. It just keeps twisting and twisting. And I had a great time. All that to say, I've talked way too long about this, but I'm filling time, so that's pretty good. But uh, I encourage you to go check out uh, Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move. 
Again, I didn't mean for this to be a review. <laughs> it kind of turned into a, a freestyle. But um, all that said, I, I actually really enjoyed this movie. And hey, while I'm at it, I might as well turn it into a review of sorts. I gave this a four out of five. So I'm looking at my letterbox right now. And um, wow, I, I don't know. I had, a, I had a really fun time with it. I can't wait to show it to some people. Again, Not it's not brilliant. It's not like this super special thing. Uh, but I had a lot of fun with it. If you're looking to have a lot of fun and you have HBO Max, go check out No Sudden Move or rent it somewhere. Uh, support Soderbergh. He's a great filmmaker. I, I love him a lot. So uh, I'm done with No Sudden Move. I've talked a little bit about what we're doing in 2022 in January and the 1st of February. We have our best of 2021 coming up here in, in uh, two episodes from now. will be part one. I am assuming because Joe and I are long-winded as fuck and whoever else we bring. I'm trying to get Matt Sosi on here again, Matthew Sosi, um, uh, from Film Sociology with WFYI and, and all that stuff. Uh, Matthew's awesome. Uh, if we can work out scheduling stuff, he'll be here. Uh, if not, I, we might have another guest. If not, it'll just be Joe and I. The point is, it's going to be fun, and we're going to probably be long-winded, even though I'm going to try to cut us down so we're not doing like way too long of episodes for a top 10 uh, but we'll probably end up making it two episodes. Definitely hang around. Keep a, you know, anticipate those over the next couple of weeks. But for now, I am going to uh, kind of jump forward here. And I want to talk about Wes Anderson's latest film, The French Dispatch. The French Dispatch that came out last year from Wes Anderson, written by Wes Anderson, Roman Coppola, Hugo Guinness, and Jason Schwartzman. Guys, check out this cast. No fucking joke. Uh, Much, much bigger than No Sudden Move. This may be the biggest cast I've ever named because the names are, you know, nameable enough. Um, But here it goes. Benicio Del Toro again. He was in No Sudden Move. Great year for him, apparently. But Benicio Del Toro, Adrian Brody, Tilda Swinton, Leo Seydoux, uh, Francis McDormand, Timothy Chalamet, Lynn Kudry, Jeffrey Wright, Matthew Almerick, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Bob Balaban, uh, Henry Winkler. Yes, you heard me right, the Fonz. Henry Winkler, Tony Revolori, uh, Christoph Waltz, Liev Schreiber, uh, Willem Dafoe, Edward Norton, Saoirse Ronan, um, Elizabeth Moss, Jason Schwartzman, and Angelica Houston, and there are more people, folks. If you go to IMDb and look at the cast, it goes for days, okay? And there are even a few other people you'd recognize. I just don't know if you'd recognize their names, but it doesn't matter. The point is, that's enough. That is a lot of people. I'm still blown away by this looking at it. I mean, it takes up like five full lines of my notes just listing off these people. It's crazy. Uh, It was released October 22nd, uh, 2021. I saw it about a month ago. I just haven't had a chance to cover it on the podcast. Um, It was a budget of $25 million up to now because it's still in theaters in some places, I think, maybe. Maybe not. You can buy it now, so I don't know what's happening. Um, but it's made $42.4 million, which these are pandemic numbers for a movie like a Wes Anderson movie that's not like an MCU movie or something. It's actually not bad. They made their money back and nearly doubled it. So, you know, good for him. Um, but uh, basically, and the synopsis is short. Uh, the film is about the staff of a European publication that decides to publish a memorial edition highlighting the three best stories from the last decade. One story is about an artist sentenced to life imprisonment. 
Another is about student riots. And another is, and the final one is a about a kidnapping resolved by a chef. And that is it, okay? Uh, ultimately, the story of the film, the narrative, is surrounding this publication. And... Uh, there, you know, the reason we're watching this as some sort of like special moment is because of this memorial edition. And ultimately it just tells very clinically the story of these three situations and they're entertaining. There's no, there's no depth to this. Okay. There's nothing special narratively because that's not really what Wes Anderson does. Is it Wes Anderson is, and I mean this with all due respect, and it is both a criticism and my favorite thing about him. He is all style over substance. His earlier films, I would argue, and I'll talk about this in a moment, have a bit more substance. They have a bit more emotion, a bit more heart. Um, but he has become so clinical um, that uh, these ty this type of story is perfect for his movies because it really lends itself to the visual presentation that he presents. Uh, I, I just have to say this. When I saw... Bottle Rocket, which was not the first film I saw by Wes Anderson. I believe the first one I saw was The Royal Tenenbaums, but I'll come back to that. After I saw The Royal Tenenbaums, I went back. I watched uh, Rushmore, and then I watched uh, Bottle Rocket. Now, watching Bottle Rocket, I was really disappointed because I wanted more of The Royal Tenenbaums, and Bottle Rocket just felt like an indie movie from the 90s. Now, nowadays, I love it, and I have the Criterion Edition on my shelves, and I'm a big fan of Bottle Rocket. But at the time, I wanted it to be the Royal Tenenbaums. And that's not fair. This is the mid-2000s when I first uh, was introduced to Wes Anderson. Probably like 2004. So then I watched Rushmore. And it's much closer. It's certainly the bridge. But in my brain, Rushmore was still closer to Bottle Rocket than it was Royal Tenenbaums. Royal Tenenbaums was like weird and colorful and... You know, there's a lot. More, it was a lot more meticulous in my mind. Um, you know, I love Rushmore. Okay, but Royal Tenenbaums was my jam, and I remember Life. So it had to be 2004 because Life Aquatic was coming out, and I saw Life Aquatic in the theaters, and I remember seeing Life Aquatic with Steve Cizu and not really getting it. I was not a. I liked it. I was entertained, but I, it was fine. I was still a Royal Tenenbaums guy. Now I love that movie. Later, I watched The Darjeeling Limited when that came out in 2007. Uh, big fan because I liked Wes Anderson's style. Didn't get that one really either. Now I love it. I feel like I get it. Um, Fantastic Mr. Fox is really where my diehard love came in because I think that's just a perfect fucking movie. Fantastic Mr. Fox is a stop-motion animation movie that Wes Anderson had always dreamed to make. Um, another killer cast, uh, George Clooney being one of the leads and the, fame, the really great lines, famous in my household at least, uh, where instead of cussing, they just go, what the cuss? You know, and they just say cuss instead of saying a, a swear word. Re just really great, fun for the whole family for me. So, like, I just, I really love it. But, like, Fantastic Mr. Fox is kind of the bridge movie, right? But, like, the first tier of Wes Anderson is Bottle Rocket, and I'm going to put Rushmore with it, even though it does kind of bridge the gap, okay? And then you have the Royal Tenenbaums, Okay which, again, Rushmore kind of fits into that tier as well. But the Royal Tenenbaum shows a certain meticulous nature that he's going, that Wes Anderson's going to build upon after that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get back to the French Dispatch here in a minute. So then Life Aquatic comes out, and we get, again, now we get even drier humor, but we get more meticulous 
craft, right? Like visual craft. We get the dollhouse stuff proper, properly done with the ship and everything. Or the submarine. Or all the things. Doesn't matter. Not the submarine. The ship. It doesn't matter. So, <laughs> And then Darjeeling Limited, we still get more of that dry sense of humor. That very meticulously shot thing. But we're, we still have that certain type of awkward humor that we get all the way back to Bottle Rocket. But especially whenever we get to like Royal Mom's on, I would say. That this is my opinion. Again, Rushmore you can throw in either camp, okay? But then we get into Fantastic Mr. Fox, and he's still doing kind of the funny thing. This is all a, whole, all a new thing because it's the stop motion thing. But he's doing that same type of uh, really dry humor. But now this is the bridge to the next era of Wes Anderson. Because when Moonrise Kingdom comes out, this is... Wes Anderson concentrate. This is super potent Wes Anderson. This is his brain on a screen, okay? It is the most awkward, you know, humor. And it's just, it's uh, like super meticulous visually. And I just remember seeing this at the uh, Keystone Art Cinema in uh, Indianapolis. And just being blown away by this movie because I'd never seen anything like it. And then you move on to something like the Grand Budapest Hotel. And this movie, two years after Moonrise Kingdom, is a masterpiece. An absolute masterpiece. A master of craft. A master, again, taking the narrative kind of out. Because as you, if you watch all of his movies, the narrative kind of starts to slowly deteriorate from these movies and become a very kind of clinical telling of a story, right? But it's all about the visuals as we continue. And the Grand Budapest Hotel is a masterpiece. Isle of Dogs, same kind of thing as Fantastic Mr. Fox. You have this kind of incredible stop motion thing, and it's even it's going the same direction. Super awkward and dry. Now, that is a really long-winded way to get around to this. The French Dispatch is the furthest he's gone. And when I watched The French Dispatch, I had no idea what the story was. I don't even think I'd watched a trailer all the way through. With movies like this that I know I'm going to watch, I usually don't watch ads for it or anything if I can help it. Because I know I'm going to see it anyways. So who cares? So I watched The French Dispatch. Unfortunately, it was on this Disney app. It was like a screener that I had. And uh, it was on like my fucking phone. I had to watch it that way. Like I had no other way to watch it. I don't have an Apple TV device for my TV, so, like, I had to have that for that. It was stupid. Even that small, okay, I have an iPhone XS, all right? So uh, even a screen that small, I was still blown away by this movie. This, the French Dispatch, I don't even know where to start. The French Dispatch tells these really funny, quirky stories, as Wes Anderson does. But no one can do what Wes Anderson does, especially here. I'm convinced of this. There is a Stanley Kubrick level of meticulousness with Wes Anderson's visual presentation and his vision, the way he wants things to be seen. You know, and he can't just make it simple. He has to do it in a quirky way that is very much his concentrated vision. He has to do it that way. That's how it works. So in this film, we get 
color scenes. We get black and white scenes. We get different aspect ratios, I believe. Uh, we get an animated sequence. I'm pretty sure that I, I believe I saw a backdrop whenever they're in a train or something that is stop motion backdrops. Now, I could be wrong. Okay, that's the one I'm not certain of. But I like I was looking at it and I can't tell if it was just choppy or what. But I'm looking at it, I'm like, dude, I think that background stop motion. That's crazy. Dude, there are moments where Anderson does these freeze frames. And this happens multiple times through the movie. And he does these freeze frames, but they're not actually frozen. The camera's sitting there and everyone's just standing still. And occasionally you can tell because someone's just naturally kind of has like a little bit of balance motion. And they're like, I mean, there's stuff flying in the air and, and just all of this crazy shit that they have just like still, right? And the camera will just pan across to these different scenes. And the effect that this has is so much cooler than like people actually being frozen, like freeze frame. So like the fact that it's not, there's a point, I believe if I remember correctly, because again, I saw this like a month ago. I believe Benicio Del Toro actually like walks through a freeze frame where these people are just standing there. And there's just something about it that is so like vastly more impressive than just having a freeze frame because you know that like Wes Anderson had to take it this far, right? He had to do so much work to make this so perfect. His visual presentation is unmatched. Wes Anderson, I believe in say 20 years is going to be looked back upon as a legend. Not that he won't be making movies then maybe he will be. He's not like an old dude, but I, he will be a legend and it's not because of his narrative, because the story in this movie honestly doesn't matter. As far as I'm concerned, I could mute the damn thing. Uh, it's interesting. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I had a really good time with Benicio Del Toro's um, story. That was probably my favorite. Uh, the um, Bill Murray one, which I believe is the first story they tell, is, uh, or at least the first part, the kind of first act of the movie. Uh, is good like that. Jeffrey Wright's section is good. Uh, Timothy Chalamet's is, I, I really like it, but it's probably my least favorite, even though it has moments in it that are probably my favorite thing in the whole film. Uh, dude, I mean, this movie is just, I, if you can't tell, I'm very excited about it because you it's not every year that you get movies like this. And, and, and again, no one, not even Kubrick, no one does, nor do I believe anyone could do what Wes Anderson does better than him. He is truly a master filmmaker at what he's doing. And again, he's not a narrative genius. That's not the point of his movies. His visual presentation is just unmatched to me. And I'm talking like, you know, you have people like Tarkovsky, you know, who made these incredible visual films. Um, you know, I bringing a Kubrick up. I mean, he's like a really impressive guy. Malik has his own visual style that is very specific to him and has a, a very gorgeous look to it, I, I think. Uh, there are a lot of visual filmmakers, all right? Even Denis Villeneuve with films like Dune and, um, and Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival and all these movies, they're really cool visual things. No one holds a candle to me, to Wes Anderson. And he's not even like close to my favorite filmmaker. And I, I like all of his movies, but he's not like my favorite. But dude, this movie is awesome. 
for if not for any other reason for the visuals. All that said, um, there's not honestly, I don't feel like there's a ton more to talk about with the French Dispatch beyond the performances. I love the uh, relationship between Benicio Del Toro and Leah Seydoux's characters uh, whenever you see the film. Um, I hope you like it too. Francis McDormand and Timothy Chalamet's section as well, um, and Lena uh, Kudry, th- that like uh, little triad of, of folks there, um, that's really great. Um, it's funny cause I only remember Owen Wilson from literally one short scene. <laughs> I think he's actually in it later, like sitting on a couch, like with people at the newspaper or something, but I just remember him riding a bike. Like that's it. Like some of these people literally like Leif Schreiber, uh, is interviewing, um, what's his name? I'm look Jeffrey Wright's character as Jeffrey Wright, as one of the authors of one of these stories is kind of narrating the story. And, uh, yeah, uh, Jeffrey Wright's great, of course, uh, and fits very well in the Wes Anderson universe. But Leif Schreiber is just like a guy interviewing him. That's all he is. Uh, Tilda Swinton, of course, you know, I hear she has a huge year coming in 2022, multiple movies. I mean, like five or six movies or something with her in them. They sound awesome, and they're all with, like, awesome filmmakers, which is pretty cool. Uh, But Tilda Swinton's always a complete gem. And uh, she is, I, I love her here. She is, again, one of the authors, and she's doing a presentation at a conference or somewhere, wherever she is. And she's doing this presentation about the story that she did. Um, and, uh, of course, it plays out the story, but it always cuts back to Tilda Swinton as she's giving this presentation. She's just a complete gem. She's just one of the great American actors, you know. Uh, but not only did Benicio Del Toro have a great uh, relationship with Leo Sidhu, uh, but he also has a great moment with Adrian Brody. There's a great camera little thing that they do where uh, Adrian Brody pisses off Benicio Del Toro enough. And Benicio Del Toro is like the the, the um, tormented artist. He's has life in prison, and like his art comes from his pain. And whenever he's going to finish a piece, like he harms himself. So there's a point where he like stabs himself in the leg. So whenever he's like showing off this piece to Adrian Brody, uh, and it's it's a- Adrian Brody, Bob Balaban, and Henry Winkler are like this trio that are kind of like buying his artwork, you know, and and showcasing it. Um, Adrian Brody being kind of like the the main person. And so Benicio Del Toro at this like showcase or whatever is like in a wheelchair because his legs all fucked up because he stabbed himself. So he starts chasing Adrian Brody because Adrian Brody pisses him off. And the can it's just the camera moving super fast and Adrian Brody running from the camera. Like if you think about how the film the scene was shot, you know, it's just, you know, a guy probably in a wheelchair or something like that, uh, with the camera, right? But the effect it has, like, it's just one of those things where it's like, I've seen this before, but the way that Wes Anderson uses it is just to great comedic effect. And it's like, if I'm not laughing, I am legit impressed every frame with both the performances and the the visual um, craft of Wes Anderson. So I've talked long enough uh, about the French Dispatch. The most important thing you need to know is you need to see this movie. I do think it's one of the best of the year. Uh, really, really great. Again, style over substance. There's not a ton you're going to be chewing on after this, right? Like, there's not a lot of fat to chew here, as some of the other titles I'm going to talk about here uh, today. But uh, definitely get a chance to see the French Dispatch. 
currently, uh, you can, I think you can buy it on Amazon and Apple and all that. I'm sure you can also rent it. I'm actually going to look that up for you folks now. Um, but uh, this this movie rules. Let's let's see if you can rent this shit. Uh, the French Dispatch. Why I can't spell right now, I have no idea. Yeah, you can rent it on Amazon Prime uh, and probably anywhere else that you rent movies. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere else. Uh, again, I had a screener, but you can watch this. Go see it. This is a movie I am pushing you. I think most of, not all, but most of the movies I'm talking about today, I'm going to push you to go see. So save up a little money and rent this shit. That is The French Dispatch, Wes Anderson's latest film. Uh, he has a new one coming out. In case you're interested, it comes out this year in 2022. Uh, it's called Asteroid City. has a huge cast as well. I know very little to nothing about it. So, uh, But Tom Hanks is in it. Scarlett Johansson, Margot Robbie, uh, Tilda Swinton, Adrian Brody, Bill Murray, all, like Jason Schwartzman, Brian Cranston, um, Jeff Goldblum, Lee Schreiber again, Jeffrey Wright again. I mean, just the whole thing. Matt Dillon's in it. Uh, Sophia Lillis. All of these people. It's just like, what in the hell is going on with this guy and his cast? I just can't even figure it out. But uh, it is obviously going to be amazing. Uh, so keep an eye out for Asteroid City. We might talk about that a little bit on our most anticipated films of 2022. Uh, but the next film I'm going to talk about, that's The French Dispatch. We're going to move on to a very, very different film, and it's called Mass. All right, Mass from 2021, written and directed by Fran Kranz. Uh, cast Jason Isaacs, Martha Plimpton, and Dowd, probably the best actor in the world right now, uh, and Reed Birney. Uh, it was released October 8th, 2021. Uh, this was, this along with The French Dispatch, was a part of my 2021 most anticipated films, that top five list that we did at the beginning of the year. Uh, this was one of them. And boy, did I have a good time with this one, which is kind of sad to say, because this is a fucking bummer, this movie, because uh, it basically takes place years after a tragic shooting at a school, and uh, the parents of both the victim and the perpetrator meet face-to-face. -face. That is it. That is this story. It is about uh, a the shooter that, you know, uh, like, performed the mass shooting at this school, his parents, and then the parents of one of the children that were killed. And this family uh, of the victim uh, did not choose to sue uh, the the uh, parents of the murder, like the shooter. And so they, through a series of, uh, you know, mediators and, and therapists and stuff, have decided to meet to just kind of discuss and talk through it and, you know, uh, maybe hopefully come to some level of closure. And, uh, you know, each person kind of comes into it wanting something. And it is, I mean, the, the film is 100, or 100, uh, an hour and 51 minutes. And I bet at least, at least uh, an hour and 40 minutes, hour and 45, maybe, somewhere around there. Uh, it is them having this conversation. It is expertly written. Um, I, I think it's Fran Kranz. I think that's how you say the name, Fran Kranz. 
I feel bad that I'm, I feel like I'm just saying this wrong. It's Francis Elliot Krantz. That's the, <laughs> that's the guy, but he goes by Fran Krantz. Uh, but he he's uh, actually an actor who's been in you know several uh, movies. I believe he was in. Um, I'm looking before I say it. He was in Much Ado About Nothing uh, in from 2012. He was in The Cabin in the Woods, movies like that. Uh, and I'm talking about the director of Mass right now. But he's an actor. He's also uh, produced a few things. But he has 74 acting credits, and I, I bring that up because I'm not surprised at all. Because when you watch Mass, this was clearly written for actors. This is the kind of thing that any actor would beg to have a, a role like this. And all four of these main actors, Jason Isaacs, Martha Plimpton, Ann Dowd, and Reed Birney. If you don't know those names, Jason Isaacs, you probably do. He plays Lucius Malfoy in Harry Potter and a ton of other roles. All four of these people are awesome. Go look them up. You'll know their faces probably. At the very least, you'll know other work they were in. Uh, Anne Dowd is, again, probably one of the most underrated actors in Hollywood or in the world. <laughs> I mean, she is incredible. And here, it is no exception. She is absolutely a cannonball here. Um, and she wrecked me. Um, and yes, I did cry uh, two different times during this movie because it is, it is uh, really heavy. So I, I first want to say this. I so I I so my dad saw this. My dad and uh, and he's probably listening to this. My dad and my stepmom saw uh, Mass. And I remember my dad going, Yeah, I got about 15 minutes into it, and I realized, oh, it's the family of the victim and the family of the shooters. They're not gonna resolve anything. And I, I just laughed. I was like, Dad, that's not the point. And we we both like laughed about it, you know. But I don't want you going into it thinking that. I'm just going to get that out of the way now. This is a movie that wrestles with ideas. And if you're not willing to wrestle with them or feel the emotions that come with a film like this, this will not land with you, I'm sure, to be honest. I, I can't imagine it landing with you. This is one of those movies where you go into it and you think Jason Isaacs and Martha Plimpton are the parents of the, the victim. And you think, man, like, they they have all the ammunition in the world to throw at these people. How are they going to sit across from the parents of the boy who shot their son? How are they going to do this without just throwing shit in their face? You know? And then you meet Ann Dowd and Reed Birney. And they are the parents of the shooters. And Reed Birney is very like straight to the point, very meticulous about what he says because he's thinking about lawyers and lawsuits and because other families have sued them. And so, you know, he's he's being very careful about what he says. And Dowd is just the fucking greatest, this woman. And she she is her character is so multi-layered. And you just never know it. Like the first time you meet her, you just think she's like kind of flighty, maybe. My God, just so good. Not only is her performance the best of the bunch, in my opinion. If she doesn't win awards, I don't give a fuck about the Oscars and stuff, okay? I mean, I like watching them. I like knowing who wins. But I don't put much stock in the winners, okay? Because history has shown us that the winners often are not the films that are remembered uh, or the films considered the best of the year uh, years later. 
Anne Dowd needs to win, though. I want her in the books. I want her to have uh, a W for win uh, on her record. And uh, I want people to be able to say Oscar winner, Oscar winning actress, Anne Dowd. Or like Golden Globe winning. You know, like I want her to have that title so she can be in just like all the movies. I've never seen an Anne Dowd performance I didn't like. I think she is a goddamn angel. So in this film, she just brings so much life. And at first, I'm I'm like listening to Reed Bierney's character, um, and uh, he plays Richard. I'm listening to Richard, and I'm like, man, fuck this guy. Like he's being super. He's being way too careful. They're not gonna get anywhere. My dad was right. They're not gonna resolve this because he's not gonna let him. He's being way too careful. And then Ann Dowd's Linda is starts giving away more information, right? And uh, Martha Plimpton's Gale is kind of like she gets to a point where she starts to break down. And she's trying to get more and more information out of them. You know, why did he do this? Why, why did this happen? Why didn't you stop him? Why didn't you get him help? But she starts asking all these kind of penetrating questions. And, you know, uh, Richard, the father of the shooter, is is trying to, you know, kind of keep things like, well, we shouldn't talk about that. And, and uh, Ann Dowd's Linda, the mother of the shooter, is just like, screw that. We need to get this out. And then the whole time, Jason Isaac plays Jay, the father of the victim, married to Gail. And and Jay is trying to keep it cool. And he's keeping it light. And he's keeping it simple. And there's a point where he kind of breaks down. And he starts interrogating them a bit. But what it, at that point, you kind of feel justified as a viewer. And you're like, damn, like these people, like they earned this. They lost their son. They earned this. And then as they start interrogating, you start to learn more about Linda and Richard as he starts to let his guard down. And you learn that they are hurting the same as Jay and Gail, that their son, who they loved, who they thought they were doing everything for, who is now dead also, they're grieving their dead son. They had to essentially have a private, like, secret funeral for their son because they were afraid that there would be, you know, uh, death threats and protests and all this stuff they are hurting just as bad they didn't murder gail and jay's son their son did and they admit that and they acknowledge it and they own it and when they do that and you start to see these families kind of struggle with all of these bigger ideas i just felt so many emotions watching this i felt like this is just like the kind of movie i've always wanted because I remember when I was younger, there was a, a school shooting at an Amish school, okay? And the shooter got apprehended, and, uh, you know, the police are, are you know, taking him in. And a, uh, two, like, a, a pair of parents, <laughs> the, the parents of a victim there, that's all I need to say it, of one of the victims of this shooting, walked up to the man being, you know, he's handcuffed, he's being put in a squad car, and they forgive him. They go, you know, we just want you to know that we forgive you for what you've done. And this has stuck with me ever since because I never want my daughter, anything to ever happen to her. But hypothetically, if anything ever happened to my daughter, I'd probably want to kill these people. I mean, let's just be honest. Like, let's, let's, if we're completely honest, in reality, I'd probably want the absolute worst for these people. But in my heart, and, and, and currently in my state, because my daughter is safe and I can think about these things 
Uh, not that I want to think about them, but I can think about them a bit more, um, maybe uh, as objective as I can, maybe? I don't know how to say that. I want to respond the way that Amish family did. I want to be able to forgive them. I want. I don't want them to have the death penalty. I don't want them to be, I want them to get the proper help. You know, what, what, whatever the situation is, like, I want to be that person. That's the person that I personally strive to be. And watching this movie wrestling with these ideas where there are like certain idealistic ideas where someone starts throwing some, like one of the family members starts throwing it at another fan, the other family, you know, like Gail might, this is hypothetical, but Gail might throw something at Linda's character, you know, so the victim's mom to the shooter's mom. And it's so idealistic. It's so easy. It's clearly what the audience is thinking. At least I was thinking. But then the response of Linda to that immediate like question marks. Like I just start thinking. I start chewing on this content, right? I start wrestling with this content. Um, I think this film is an absolute masterpiece. Uh, I first heard about this film from Sundance Film Festival. Um, it is a movie that I hope everyone gets a chance to see. Currently, it's not streaming anywhere, uh, but I'm uh, I'm sure it will be up for to rent and things here soon. Keep an eye out for uh, Fran Krantz, uh Mass. Mass is absolutely it's heart wrenching. It's not a movie that you're going to want to you know. Uh, if you are if you are affected by movies in the sense that a sad movie will make you feel really bad, make sure you're in a real fucking good movie and you have some ice cream and tissues, all right? Uh, because and watch this sober too. <laughs> I mean, like really wrestle with this. It's 111 minutes, all right? Hour and 51 minutes is not bad, and it is. Uh, I I really think it's one of the great films of this year. Um, you should definitely check out Mass. And I'm going to go ahead and stop there because I don't want to give too much away. The The magic of this film is not knowing much about it and going into it and watching these families wrestle with this. It is not about resolution. It is about the journey to a resolution or a lack thereof. The journey is, is, the, is the film. The wrestling with these ideas is the film. So I hope you're able to see Mass. Um, I know that some of my Indiana Film Journalist Association friends, I mean, the Indiana Film Journalist Association, actually, this was their number one film of the year. Uh, this was voted by the whole crew. I know that our friend, friend of the show, Sam Watermeyer, this is a five-star movie for him, his favorite film of the year. We'll see uh, whenever we do our top 10 of 2021 episodes we'll have people calling in and, and leaving us voicemails and things and we'll see if that stuck with Sam if it was his favorite in the end but when I talked to him a few months ago up to that point this was his favorite so it's it's really great definitely go out of your way to see this if you can handle such content um, and on that note I'm gonna let it go so that's mass checking out again and Dowd just the greatest uh, I'm gonna come back and again completely switch you know, sw switch everything around. I'm going to talk about Lana Wachowski's The Matrix Resurrections. The Matrix Resurrections, the latest in the Matrix series. 
Um, directed by Lana Wachowski. I don't know where Lily Wachowski went, but um, apparently she's uh, not around. So Lana Wachowski, one of the original directors and creators of The Matrix. Uh, it was also uh, written by David Mitchell and uh, Alexander Hemin, uh, based on, of course, the characters by Lana and Lily Wachowski. Uh, the cast, Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, oh God, uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, hopefully I got that correct, uh, Jonathan Groff, Jessica Henwick, Neil Patrick Harris, Jada Pinkett Smith, and a very small uh, kind of cameo of sorts from Christina Ricci, which I almost didn't recognize at first, and then I did. It came out December 22nd, 2021. You can see it in theaters and on HBO Max. If you have HBO Max, it is streaming there, and that is how I watched it. Um, and, uh, we return to a world of two realities, one everyday life, the other, what lies behind it, uh, you know, to, to, to find out if his reality is a construct to truly know himself, Mr. Anderson, who we also know as Neo played by Keanu Reeves, will have to choose to follow the white rabbit once more and dive into the matrix and also escape it. Uh, you know, uh, the, Guys, I my wife and I, whenever I brought this up to my wife that the Matrix Resurrections was available, she's like, oh, man, yeah, I want to see that. Um, can we watch the original Matrix? I was like, absolutely. So I go upstairs, and I get the, the Matrix Blu-ray, and I take it down, throw it in, start it, and I'm, like, blown away by this movie. This movie, if you count 2022, even though we're at the very beginning, but from 2022, that movie is, like, 23 years old. Okay, that movie, is that right? Twenty, Yeah, 23 years old. That movie fucking rules, guys. Like, go back and watch that. The only thing I consider that has, like, aged is, like, the rock music during the action sequences. This is a fucking five-star perfect action movie. Remembering what it did for action movies also, how important in kind of film history it is for that kind of genre, because it's a sci-fi action movie. Holy shit, man. This movie, super awesome. I'm watching it. I'm like surprisingly into this movie, very into it. And I remember scenes even, but like then watching them in context, because I I remember them out of context, of course. But then I see them in context, and I'm like, fuck, the Wachowskis are awesome. Then I remember the sequels, which I hated. But the original Matrix is a standalone film. You do not need Reloaded and whatever the fuck the other one was called. I can't think of right now. Uh, You don't need any of that crap. All right. There are cool concepts there, but those movies suck. Unfortunately, The Matrix Resurrection continues the sequel's work Um, in terms of how it tells the story, how it just kind of trivializes, in my view, uh, what make what made the Matrix so fascinating? Um, I don't know what Lana Wachowski is. I made the joke uh, whenever I was gonna see this. I I, I put um, I put uh, I imagine. Oh wait, no. I put uh, there, there's a line where uh, Jonathan Groff, one of the actors who plays um, Agent uh, Smith, right, who was a uh, Hugo Weaving. Um, and, and, uh, Jonathan Groff as agent Smith says, uh, something along the lines of Warner brothers is going to make a sequel with or without you. So you might as well be a part of it. And I imagine that's exactly what happened with Lana Wachowski. 
<laughs> like I imagine a studio is like, yo, we're going to make another Matrix movie with or without you. So you in? Um, and it seems like Lily uh, likely made the right choice by staying away. Um, the Matrix Resurrections was fun to watch. I had a good time watching it with my wife. I don't hate this movie. But the movie is not really about anything that made the Matrix that great. If the reason you like all of the Matrix movies is because of Neo and Trinity, I just don't understand you. Yes, I like them together. Yes, I like how that is built. But there are like a billion other movies that do like relationships like that. Like what makes this movie so special is literally like everything else. The original Matrix, I mean... The Matrix Resurrection Re Resurrections focuses on this relationship between Trinity and Neo. And uh, essentially further trivializes all of the shit that makes the Matrix special. The, the biggest complaint I have is Yahya Abdul-Mateen II plays Morpheus. He's a much younger Morpheus. I'm not sitting here saying that uh, the dude that played Morpheus before, which I feel fucking stupid because I can't think of his name right off the top of my head. It's um, Lawrence Fishburne. I, I get it, dude. Lawrence Fishburne is like an old dude now. He's not pulling this shit off. That's fine. Like, that's fine. Maybe maybe that's the reason. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But I get it. But the Yahya Abdul-Mateen II does a good job, too. Like, I'm not, I'm not complaining about the performance. It's the content that he's given. It's just fucking stupid. It just, it, like I said, it just further trivializes everything. Like, why are we watching shit from the first movie again? Like, I get it. I, I get that the whole premise of the film is that Keanu Reeves, uh, like Neo and Trinity, are put back into the Matrix. That's the whole point. I'm not going to tell you why. You can go watch the movie. So the whole point is, like, they don't know that that was real. Uh, Neo or Mr. Anderson as he's known for a large portion of the film um, is he thinks it's a video game he created because he's a video game developer which is also fucking stupid to me but whatever and he thinks it's just this thing that he dreamt up and it's a video game now and lo and behold you know obviously there are three movies that prove that it was real um, and we just kind of like start over with them and I get that the whole point is like uh, that we're, we're kind of seeing this different generation and and we're bringing the Matrix, we're like updating the Matrix and, and we're, we're putting uh, Neo and Trinity kind of back into the situation where they have to find each other again. And, and, and it, gives, it gives good drama and blah, blah, blah. I just thought it was so boring, like just to watch all of it again. And all of the added stuff, the new stuff was super boring. Actually, the best part of the movie is the shit that they basically did from the first movie. I'm very upset about this because Jonathan Groff is not, he's not a, a bad actor. He is not Hugo Weaving. He is not Smith. Like, he's not an agent. And of course, by this point, Smith is like a virus and he's just like in a completely independent thing. Uh, so, but dude, he's just not Smith. It's just not right. Watch this and tell me that Jonathan Groff is a good Smith. It's awful. Again, I don't blame Groff. It's just like, why would you ever make this decision? This is a terrible, terrible decision. Furthermore, uh, Neil Patrick Harris 
in my view, could not be more miscast here. And I like Neil Patrick Harris. He's fine. But why would you put him in this role? I don't want to tell you what the role is because I don't want to spoil anything. I'm just going to say, like, Neil Patrick Harris is really good at certain things. Even like Gone Girl, which I'm not huge on, but I like it overall. The Fincher movie. But, like, Neil Patrick Harris in that, he's, like, ridiculous and, and you know, whatever. Like, uh, he's not comedy in that movie, but it's, like, he's just, like, a weird dude. He comes off weird. He pulls that off really well. Like, super well. I think that's fine. In this movie, he just seems like some, like, wisecracking geek. And it's just like, I can't, I can't accept him as the character he's supposed to be. There are just like no characters to gravitate toward, no characters to connect with, not even Morpheus. And for me personally, not even Neo and Trinity. This movie is, if you're a fan of the Matrix and you just like seeing Matrix shit, it'd probably be an easy two out of five. And that's exactly what I gave it. This is not a movie that is about really much of anything other than there are these people and they were in love and now they're going to find each other again and it's going to make everything better. And that's kind of what the film's trying to say. I'm not saying that's what happens, but that's like what it's implying from the beginning uh, or at least early on. Uh, I I don't even know what to say. Again, terribly miscast. Um, I feel like Lana Wachowski forgot how to film a fucking fight scene. The fight scenes are boring. How is a Matrix movie? How does a Matrix movie have boring fight scenes? Is it this like the thing that they do? The first Matrix movie fucking rips, dude. Like that movie is awesome. The fight scenes rule. They progressed the uh, medium of film uh, and they took us into the you know next millennium, right? Uh, and, and we still use techniques that they use then now, and we found different technological advancements that make it easier, but we use a lot of the same shit they used in 1999 still to this day, different types of, uh, uses of action and narrative and driving the narrative and all kinds of stuff. So, uh, that movie is so awesome. This movie just like doesn't fucking do any of it. And I'm, I'm just like so upset because someone could be like, no, dude, there's this one time where this thing happens. It does not have the same effect. Like what happened to the Wachowskis, at least Lana, who did this film? Like what made them go like, oh, cool, let's just like do the same thing we did before and have like none of the impressive qualities of it? I'm getting upset. Smith fucking sucks, has already said. Uh, a lot of the tech is fucking ridiculous and stupid, I think. Like, some of the machines in the film, I'll just say this very vaguely, some of the machines, after what happened in the third film, okay, the uh, revolutions, isn't that what it's called? I don't fucking care. That's what I'm going to look it up now, though, because it's going to bother me. Uh, it's uh, the Matrix, the Matrix Reloaded, um, and the Matrix Revolutions. At the end of Revolutions, of course, all kinds of shit goes down. Neo saves the day. In uh, this, again, like, like, why does this movie need to exist? It's fucking dumb. It really, really does feel like Jonathan Groff's comment about Warner Brothers are going to make a sequel with or without you. It really does seem just like, we're going to do it. You might as well do it. And Lana's like, well, I care enough about this series to do it right. Unfortunately, she doesn't, but that's whatever. So 
there are machines in this that look like, you know, sea creatures and like different like weird shit. And I'm just like, where were they before? And I understand that they evolved. Like they, I mean, they kind of like give a reason for them. And I actually like the idea of some machines kind of almost gaining some level of sentience and like kind of almost like feeling bad in some way or like having some sort of conscience that makes them feel bad for what they did before. And so they like kind of join this rebellion. I like that. That's fine. I don't mind that they're there. But I just think a lot of the technology and a lot of like these some of the choices with the machines and stuff is just stupid. I just don't understand why this exists. There's literally no reason. The movie looks fucking dumb. I hate when you see a scene and it looks like they're in a green screen warehouse and they're just like, it's all just like computer generated backgrounds and people are just like in a big like warehouse. I hate that. All the MCU movies do that. And sometimes it looks fine. Sometimes it doesn't. This movie, I just kept watching scenes. I'm like, they're just sitting in a fucking warehouse with a green screen around them. Like, it's just, it just takes me out. It's not like the fucking power of the dog where Jane Campion finds this gorgeous setting and we watch this fucking Western and it's just fucking timeless. Like, you don't need a green screen for this shit. It looks fucking perfect. And then this movie, they look stupid. And the original film looks so good. Like, I encourage you to go watch it. It holds up. It's great. So, um, I don't know, dude. Like, I don't even know if I want to, like, talk about this anymore. Listen, this is basically a love story. If you're into it, cool. More power to you. The Matrix fell off, you know, uh, fell off the train a long time ago after the first one. The first one's a masterpiece, bona fide, done. Like, I'll, I'll fight that to the death. Super important. Awesome. The second movie, awesome concepts. You know, I actually love, like, the, the key maker, key master, whatever, and... And uh, the architect, I like the concepts of these, but the way it's done is so convoluted and so ridiculous, especially the amount of time they focus on and the way that they developed Agent, Agent Smith as a virus just gets fucking stupid. And then Revolutions takes place mostly out of the Matrix, which is fine, uh, but like it just amounts to like nothing to me. Like it just it just like really sucks the life out of what made the first one so special. And this movie just has none of the things that make the first great. And I gave it a two out of five because I, I don't think it's worthless. I'm not saying anything good about it. I get that. And I'm quite frankly, I'm not going to because you can watch it. And maybe if I'm this harsh on it, you'll be like, oh, it's not that bad. And I hope you do. Like, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. If someone wanted to watch it, I'd watch it again. I will never watch it by myself again unless someone prompts me to see it. I have no reason to. It's just boring to look at. It's boring to listen to in terms of like narrative and like putting it together. Uh, the performances are fine, but I just think everyone's like miscast. It just feels wrong. It, it honestly feels like exactly what Jonathan Groff's comment about Warner Brothers is going to make a sequel with or without you. It feels like Lana Wachowski or neither of the Wachowskis wanted anything to do with it. So Warner Brothers just threw some person straight out of grad school. On, on the job, or like someone who had like one film under their belt, like just some like studio director, you know what I mean? Like it just seems heartless to me. I just didn't get anything out of it. 
Uh, if you agree or disagree, please let me know. I would love to hear your thoughts on The Matrix Resurrections. I know that I'm being really harsh on it. It's a two out of five movie at fucking best. I don't understand why people like it outside of nostalgia for the originals. Um, and and I feel like people would have to like Reloaded and Revolutions to like Resurrections because this is not the original Matrix. This is not like it. Every scene it takes from the original Matrix is a diluted version of the original. So, because they do actual shot for shots of some of the scenes. Uh, and it's just, it's just not good. I'm sorry. Uh, if you agree or disagree, though, I would love to hear your thoughts. So please hit us up, Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about the Matrix Resurrections. That was most, I have some notes, but quite frankly, that was mostly just a word vomit. So I'm glad that you bared with me. Uh, I have two more movies to talk about real quick, uh, and I'll try to keep it uh, as brief as I can. But the next movie I'm going to talk about is Come On, Come On. Come On, Come On, directed by, uh, written and directed by Mike Mills, came out last year, November 19th. The cast, Joaquin Phoenix, Gabby Hoffman, Woody Norman, who's like the kid in the movie. Awesome. And uh, uh, Scoot McNary. Um, basically, when his sister asks him to look after her son, a radio journalist uh, played by Joaquin Phoenix embarks on a cross-country trip with his energetic nephew to show him life away from Los Angeles. But what starts with, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Uncle Johnny trying to show his nephew Jesse the big city of New York. Um, uh, who learns more, Jesse or Johnny? Um, you know, it's it's one of those movies where where both of these people learn something. I love the dynamic between Joaquin Phoenix and Woody Norman. Uh, Woody Norman's probably going to win an award or something because he's just one of those kids that just like knocks it out of the park. Um. And more in like a believable way. Like it's not that his performance is like this incredible thing. It's more of like it's just like a believable kid. And it's like hard for kids to be believable on screen, I feel. Uh, but he's really great. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, Gabby Hoffman plays Viv. And uh, she is dealing with some stuff related to her uh, ex-husband, I think. Um, or, or they're separated at least. Um, but Scoot McNary plays Paul, the the uh, aforementioned husband or ex-husband or whatever. Um, but there, there's clearly a separation there. Uh, but Viv is trying to get uh, Paul help because Paul uh, suffers from, if I remember correctly, bipolar disorder. But he's very extreme. And uh, she's afraid he'll hurt himself. So she's trying to help him get help. And so uh, she talks to her estranged brother, Johnny, uh, who they have just reconnected. And uh, she ends up uh, having nowhere else to go, asking him to watch Jesse. And uh, the relationship between Johnny and Jesse is so good. Because Jesse is the uncle, so he's not the parent. He feels like he can kind of get away with some things. But he also wants to, like, make sure he's on the good side with Viv. So he tries to hold everything, you know, uh, to her standard. Uh, and Jesse is, you know, an eight- or nine-year-old kid. And he wants to... Uh, you know, eat sugar all night and, uh, you know, have screen time whenever he wants. And, you know, he'll tell Johnny, mom would let me do it, even if she wouldn't, you know. And Johnny has to learn these things about him. I mean, is there is there a more 
is there a better or like uh I don't know how to say it. I mean is, is anyone better than Joaquin Phoenix? I mean this guy can turn a simple Uncle Johnny character into this character that just has such depth. And and he's one of those guys where I feel like some people either like him or they don't. You know what I mean? Like it's one or the other. There's no like he's fine. Like, I feel like a lot of, I mean, that might be the case with some people, but I just feel like people either like him or they don't. And I feel like you just have to get him because Joaquin Phoenix, one thing you can't say about him is he doesn't give his all. Every performance is his all. Like, that's the only place he knows to go is to give it everything. And so uh, here he does that. And some of the scenes he captures with Jesse, Johnny and Jesse. Woody Norman kills this man because there's some really serious scenes between Johnny and Jesse where they're talking about really serious things. Like Jesse uh, asks his uncle Johnny, played by Joaquin Phoenix, as I mentioned, uh, you know, why are you single? Do you want to be single? Do you want children? Like these kind of heavy questions. And Johnny doesn't know how to answer this kid because he's like, "Ah, I feel like I should be honest with him and like talk to him about these things so he can like kind of learn from him. But at the same time, I don't know what the fuck's going on because I don't have all my shit together. Like I have a job that pays the bills and it's cool. And, you know, I get to like record shit and like talk to people and interview them. Like he gets to do all this cool stuff, but it's like he actually doesn't even realize how much life he still has to live and how much he has to learn, Johnny, you know? And Jesse's just a kid. And it's one of those things where, you know, their part, like, I almost said partnership, but they're like, their relationship in the movie, like, they're both learning from one another. And I just love movies like that, you know, where you have these kind of two opposites in a way. In this case, it's an uncle and a nephew. And they were estranged, like, they hadn't seen each other in over a year. Uh, So, you know, uh, their relationship, they hardly know each other. Because if anybody knows kids, you know, going from something like like six or seven to eight or nine can be a huge jump, a huge difference. And Johnny might not be any different, but Jesse is. And even if Jesse remembers how Uncle Johnny was, Jesse's different. He will respond to that differently. So they're basically strangers, and they're just kind of like living together for a while. You know, while while uh, Gavi Hoffman's Viv takes care of Scoot McNary's Paul. And so, uh, man, this is uh, one of those heavy hitters as well. It's all black and white. It's not It's not a long movie. It's only um, an hour and 49 minutes. And uh, it, it's one of those movies that's kind of uh, one part slice of life, like we watch them live life together, and the story's told by their experiences together. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it's also about this Joaquin Phoenix character, Johnny, and the things that he learns through this experience because he does start to tackle his former relationships the pe- the person that he still is in love with even though they're not together anymore you know he starts to deal with these parts of of his life and uh one of the impressive things about uh Woody Norman's Jesse is this kid can tackle these really serious things there's a point in the film where Johnny has taken Jesse to New York he had to leave and uh the mom by Gabby Hoff, played by Gabby Hoff and Viv, uh, had to, uh, you know, she's like, well, if you have to go, Johnny, I guess he can go. You've put me in a corner kind of a thing, you know? And so Johnny takes Jesse and they're in New York and Johnny is 
looking at something for like a second. It's not long, and he turns around, and Jesse's gone. And he starts to panic. He starts to freak out. And finally, he finds Jesse, and he kind of like yells at him and loses his temper a bit because he's like, dude, you can't do that. Like, we're in a big city. You could fucking die. Like, don't do that. And Jesse gets upset by this, of course, and he just jumps on a bus, so Johnny follows him, and they go through this whole, like, rigmarole, right? Jesse wants to talk to his mom. But the emotional depth of Jesse dealing with, like, him being kind of this, like, um, you know, free spirit and, and you know, uh, uh, an eccentric but caring kid, you know, who also is dealing with the fact that he doesn't see that he has any friends, like he's a loner. I mean, there's just so much to this character. And and I think he plays it so great because he hits the gamut of emotions during this stint of time where uh, Uncle Johnny loses his nephew, Jesse, and then he finds him, and they kind of deal with that situation. And they deal with Johnny yelling at, you know, young Jesse and all of these things. Uh, so the, the way that this plays out is beautiful. Um, again, black and white film. Um, Mike Mills is an interesting filmmaker. Uh, he did uh, 20th Century Women in 2016. He did Beginners in 2010. Cannot recommend Beginners enough. Uh, that movie is so good. Um, Beginners stars Ewan McGregor, Christopher Plummer, and Melanie Laurent. And uh, it is, I don't own it for some reason, even though on like Amazon last I checked, it was like $6 for a Blu-ray, like it's super cheap. Uh, but just buy it, dude. Like, it's so, so, so good. And in the same way where, like, we're just watching these people deal with their shit. And it's just really good. Uh, he also did, um, in, like, the big boom of the mid-2000s independent movies, uh, he did a movie called Thumbsucker, which I was a huge fan of back then. I would need to watch and have an updated opinion now. Uh, but, yeah, and then uh, 20th Century Women I haven't seen yet, but I need to go check that out. Uh, but Come On, Come On is totally worth your time. Uh, Mike Mills just knows how to write people. Like, that's really what the film's about. Like, yes, it's mostly about Johnny. Of course, it's about Jesse as well. It's about this relationship. It's about uh, Johnny at the beginning of the film basically saying that, yeah, of course, he wants to have a relationship. And essentially, I don't remember if he blatantly admits this or kind of hints at, like, yeah, like, we could have a family, you know? And he's talking about having, basically hinting at, like, yeah, I can have kids, uh, and then this whole experience, he learns how to be a father, essentially. I mean, like, you you basically watch this uncle learn to be a father. And uh, as a father, I could really relate to it. Because I, I remember, you know, um, like my daughter, for example, uh, her mom was pregnant. And we made it to, I believe, the seven and a half month mark, right? I can't remember weeks right now. And it was six weeks early. And they're like, yo, um, we got to get this baby out of you. You're going to die, basically. And so, because uh, my, because uh, her mom had preeclampsia and there were all these other issues. And uh, she'd put on like, I don't even know, 70 pounds or something in like just a couple of weeks. Like, it, it, it was mostly water. Like, it was retaining water. And she's just having a lot of problems. And it was causing health issues. So we had, uh, it was a C-section, and we, and or not, a, no, it wasn't, I'm so, what the fuck am I talking about? It was not a C-section. Um, I, I was thinking, I don't know what I was thinking about. <laughs> but, um, but no, no, the, they just, she was induced, is what I meant to say. It was not a C-section. Um, but uh, she was induced, 
and we had a baby six weeks early. Luckily, uh, my daughter Evie, who's been on the podcast, um, you know, Evie was healthy and she didn't need a breathing machine or that she had to stay in the NICU for a while. But my point is, yo, we weren't ready six and a half weeks early. We thought we had six weeks left. So whenever we had a baby out of nowhere, we had to learn how to be fucking parents. And I'm watching this movie. Come on, come on. And I'm watching uh, Joaquin Phoenix as Johnny learn to be a parent right in front of our eyes, basically. And he it's like trial by fire with this guy, you know, because he's just trying so hard to be a good uncle and to take care of this kid who's clearly struggling, who has all of these unspoken, like, deep feelings about... You know, where's my mom? Why did my mom leave me with you? You're basically a stranger. We don't even really know each other. Why is my dad sick? What's wrong with him? Is he okay? Is he going to die? This kid's dealing with all this shit. And Joaquin Phoenix's the uncle is just sitting there just like, yo, I'm just, all I can say is I'm here to take care of you. He doesn't say that, but I mean, that's basically what he does. He's just like, I don't have to tell you, um, but we can like talk about it if you want, because your feelings are real. And just like the way that he like helps Jesse through these things is just so powerful and impactful. And I mean, I never cried during this movie, but there are moments where you almost get choked up. Like it's, they're like, especially the very end that got me a little choked up. This is a, a really powerful movie and it brings up a lot of big ideas about children. I love the way it, it, it allows Woody Norman's Jesse to be a fucking kid. To say cuss words sometimes, you know, to to act out, but also like be a real human and also kind of be unusual and not a stereotype and and deal with feelings and, and problems. And and we actually see like a real fucking kid and not just some like cookie cutter stereotype child. Uh, Woody Norman deserves all the awards, not because he's better than everyone else, but because I love that character so much and he does it so perfectly so the performances are on point the direction is on point mike mike mills and 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 all the camera work and the black and white it's perfect uh and i'm so glad that a24 picked this movie like put this movie out because um it's just one of those movies that sticks with you after you see it at least in my experience that's the case so definitely go check out come on come on hopefully you got something out of that word vomit as well um, there's also this component as someone who is a musician and, and deals with kind of audio things, uh, you know, cause I do a podcast also, um, you know, uh, John, uncle Johnny is a, he has like a, a portable recording device and, uh, the nephew Jesse gets really attached to this and he likes to walk around the beach and the city and different things and just like record things, you know, and all I'll say is this very vaguely that recorder is such a powerful plot device in this film. The way that it works in telling the story and the way that it is used, I just can't imagine it ever being better. Like I wouldn't change I wouldn't change anything about that part of it. This is a really fucking great movie. Uh, I gave this film a four and a half out of five. Uh, if you agree or disagree, again, please hit us up uh, at Medium Cool on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Or you can email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Please watch Come On, Come On. Uh, I had a screener for that. So um, I don't know. I don't think it's like out and about yet. 
Uh, but keep an eye out for that because it will be sometime soon. Hopefully it will be streaming. But put this on your list if you have a list. Um, it is like overwhelmingly positive f uh, in terms of how people have responded to this film. So uh, I hope you do as well. Uh, I'm going to be in just a moment. I'm going to be talking about the final film uh, for this episode. It is my favorite living filmmaker, Paul Thomas Anderson, and his new movie, Licorice Pizza. Licorice Pizza. Love that title. Uh, was also uh, going to be called Soggy Bottom. That was the working title for a while. Uh, but Paul Thomas Anderson, who wrote and directed the film, called it Licorice Pizza. Uh, the cast is really impressive as well. Um, Elena Hyam, who is uh, one of the three uh, sisters, basically, uh, in the band Hyam. Um, and her sisters are also uh, in the film playing her sisters. Uh, Cooper Hoffman, who is Philip C the late Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, uh, is in this film, which is a touching thing to me, surprisingly, because when Philip Seymour Hoffman died, I actually took that heart. That was like one of the first like celebrity deaths that really got me, like like on a deep emotional level, because I loved him so much. So seeing his son in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, Mind you, Phil Seymour Hoffman, my favorite performances by him are in like Paul Thomas Anderson films. So to see like Cooper Hoffman kind of continue that made me feel really great. Uh, Sean Penn, or as uh, one of my wife's cousins said, Scene Peen. Um, but uh, Sean Penn's in it, Tom Waits, Bradley Cooper. And there's a small cameo that if you don't pay attention, you could miss it. But by John C. Riley, who, again, is a longtime Paul Thomas Anderson uh, guy. This film was released on Christmas, December 25th, 2021. Um, I had some people tell me it was released before, but according like according to the online interwebs, uh, December 25th is the day. I got to see it yesterday because I could not get a screener for this thing. I'm jealous of those who got screeners. Um, yeah. So, set in the San Fernando Valley in the 1970s, the film follows a high school student who was a successful child actor and a 20-something young woman who was lost in life. We follow them through the ebbs and flows of their relationship as friends, business partners, and more? You'll have to see. Uh... The uh, successful child actor is Cooper Hoffman. The 20-something young woman who is lost in life is Elena Hyam. And uh, I'm going to start by just uh, talking about Paul Thomas Anderson here. Where does this film fit in his filmography? If you're a fan of PTA, where does this fit? If I had to choose some of Paul Thomas Anderson's films to kind of put together to make this, I would say it's one part Inherent Vice, another part Punch Drunk Love, and another part Boogie Nights. The Boogie Nights part is only because of the setting, okay? So it is by no means like Boogie Nights per se, but there are a lot of things in the movie that remind me of Boogie Nights, but it's mostly just aesthetic. The Inherent Vice part is Inherent Vice was Paul Thomas Anderson's first uh, movie that really dove into comedy. So 
I think Boogie Nights is like way funnier than Inherent Vice and Licorice Pizza, but it's not a it's not meant to be like just a comedy. Like, yeah, the characters are allowed to be funny, but it's not like a comedy, I wouldn't say. It's kind of like Fargo's not yeah, Fargo's a dark has dark comedy stuff, but it's not like a comedy per se. It's just funny at times, you know? Inherent Vice had like comedy undertones. Like that was something that was actively being attempted, right? I'm not a huge fan of Inherent Vice. I need to rewatch it. I think I gave it a three and a half out of five or something when it came out, which I still like it. You know, it's just my least favorite of Paul Thomas Anderson's movie, including Hard Eight, which I'm a huge fan of. And so uh, the humor and the focus on humor at times in Inherent Vice is what I'm pulling from that for Licorice Pizza. Licorice Pizza has moments of blatant comedy. It feels great because the characters are taking it very seriously. For example, uh, Alana Hyam's character, Alana, is like running at this one point, and there are people running the opposite direction, and she keeps getting like hit, like ran into, and she's getting hit by all these high schoolers. And she's just like, fuck you, teenagers. And she just like keeps running. But it's like, it's not said in a comedic way. She just yells it. And she's super serious, and it's like a passing line. And I just think that's like super funny. Uh, and I'm like watching it, and I'm just like cracking up at these little lines, you know? Some of the more blatant comedy is like some of the Bradley Cooper stuff, which I found to be, honestly, some of the least funny stuff. It was funny, but some of the least funny stuff of it all. I actually thought other moments uh, in Licorice Pizza were funnier. But in its uh, in inherent vice, uh, we get a lot of that humor. Uh, but I think that Paul Thomas Anderson is incapable of making just a blatant comedy because like in an errant vice, licorice pizza like begins to get serious. And I'll talk about that here in a minute. The punch drunk love aspect of it is the way that the romance in punch drunk love, you know, um, you have uh, Adam Sandler's character. Uh, what's his name? Um, Barry Egan. Uh, Barry and Lena, who's uh, played by Emily Watson, they have the like love interests. And the film follows Barry. We do not follow Lena. She is she's brought into it, but the film is about Barry Egan. Uh, but they are brought together and torn apart and brought together and torn apart romantically, right? Well, in Licorice Pizza, we get a very similar relationship dynamic, even if it's not like purely romantic, you know, because it does start off with Cooper Hoffman's character, Gary, uh, hitting on uh, Alana. Like, that's just like how the film begins, pretty much. And they become friends and they become business partners, so to speak. You have to see the film to understand why. But um, I don't know. It's it's great. So anyways, uh, the 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 uh, punch drunk love aspect to it, uh, you know, there is um, uh, that that idea of like someone finding like having a connection with someone and it being taken away and then kind of brought back, but also like taken away again. And this constant ebb and flow uh, that is that's here. And honestly, the Boogie Nights thing actually does kind of extend to this because Boogie Nights, you know, it starts off with, you know, Mark Wahlberg's uh Dirk Diggler, you know, kind of coming into the porn industry. Uh, but by the end, like, none of the characters are really even, like, interested in porn, really. Like, at that point, you know, like, Don Cheadle's character, 
uh, is trying to like uh, Buck Swope is his name, and he's trying to like open up like these different stores, you know, <laughs> like hi-fi stores and stuff. Um, and he's uh, dating. I can't remember her name. Uh, and I'm not going to be able to find her right now, but anyways, uh, but he's, you know, uh, dating this woman, she's pregnant. He goes into the, the, uh, donut shop in Boogie Nights and like, there's like gunshots and shit. You'll just have to see the movie. It's just this incredible, incredible scene. And, uh, you know, it's not about porn anymore at that point. Like, you know, Don Cheadle's buck is like ready to get out of it and go legit as he sees it. You know, um, you know, John C. Riley and Mark Wahlberg, they like at one point want to get into like music and they're still hanging out with their friends in the porn industry, but they're more interested in like being musicians or like, you know, they're hanging out with these other people and they're trying to like rip off drug dealers and stuff. Like it just becomes something completely different. And Licorice Pizza kind of takes on a little bit of that as well. It starts off and you think it's going to be this kind of thing about their relationship, but it kind of branches off and each character kind of grows and it builds. And that ties into Paul Thomas Anderson's writing here. Licorice Pizza is its own thing. Like, I can compare it to those three movies, but it really ends up being its own thing. And that's something that I think is a credit to Paul Thomas Anderson. Every one of his films is different. Every one has its own merits. And so Licorice Pizza, um, the great thing is both Gary and Alana, these characters, uh, they get equal time to grow as characters, unlike, say, Punch Drunk Love, where you have Lena and, and Barry in the films about Barry and follows Barry. In this one, you follow both characters. And we watch their arcs happen. The first half of the film, probably, is pretty immature because it's pretty much about Gary uh, Cooper Hoffman. It's about Gary, like, doing all of these, like, random, you know, like business things to make money, you know? So at one point he's like selling water beds. He wants to do like a pinball, uh, store, uh, you know, like an arcade or whatever. And he's doing these random things. And the film is kind of, um, like, you know, Alana's now hanging out with Gary and his 15 year old friends. The film feels immature early on. And then like at about the halfway point, you know, certain like, you know, Alana, for example, starts getting involved with politics and uh, things that I would associate with like college age people. Like when you go to college, like you, the whole world seems to open up for you and it's so different and you get involved in things you never thought you would. And it just opens up and you watch Alana like kind of have a similar experience without going to college, you know, but she kind of starts opening up and learning new things and having these new experiences. And, and Gary through that relationship is forced to kind of confront certain things, but he's a fucking 15 year old high schooler. What does he have to worry about? He lives with his parents, but Alana who also lives with her parents, um, you know, she's just lost and she's trying to find her way. Whereas, you know, Gary kind of knows who he is and what he wants to do for the most part, at least as much as one does as a 15 year old. So their dynamic is so interesting. And the ebbs and flows are very natural because they find different and, you know, different things to, uh, you know, connect on or to separate them. And I love that the film gives room for them to explore these things, because a lot of time you'll have the older person taking the younger person under their wing, so to speak, or in a relationship or whatever. 
and the younger person learns a lot through the experience with the older person. But in this in this case, Gary, the 15-year-old, seems to be influencing the... Uh, at one point, Alana says she's 25, so I don't know how reliable she is because that number changes a couple of times, but it is most consistently 25 years old. But she starts to learn a lot while hanging out with Gary about who she is and what she does and doesn't want to do. And it gives room for that coming of age, you know, because you you have this like like just past college age person, barely. And you have this like high schooler and they're both like coming of age in different ways. And you get to see both of these experiences. Um, and it's funny. You know, there is a super racist character in this. And the entire room was cracking up because the film, of course, does not endorse this racism. It's awkward. And he seems like an asshole. Like, that's what the the, the movie is, like, telling you. Um, and I wish I could find the guy right off. I'm not going to be able to just straight up find him. Uh, I'm sure I say that as I'm, like, looking for him as quickly as possible. Because I want to find the guy's name. Because I recognize his face. I just don't know his name. Uh, but anyways... He's uh, like, okay, I'll just, I'll just tell this real quick. It caught me so off guard, uh, and I was like like mortified by this thing. So this guy uh, who, who owns this like, uh, this like Japanese restaurant, I guess, and he's married to, I believe his wife's name was Mariko. She speaks Japanese. She's Japanese. And uh, this guy's American. He's a white, just middle-aged, like older white dude or whatever. And he, uh, you know, uh, Gary's mom is trying to uh, write some copy for like this ad that his company is about to put out. And so he's reading it and he finds some things he likes and doesn't like. And they kind of figure it out. And uh, throughout that, Mariko, his wife, is uh, like kind of wincing at certain things that are said. And he gets it all worked out. And he's just talking normal like I am right now. And then he looks over at his wife and in the most like racist, like, white guy doing a Japanese impression and pardon me I'm going to try to do this this is going to be embarrassing but he's just talking like I am to you right now and then he looks at his Japanese wife and goes I how do you think of that or what you know and he just does this like super racist thing that in and of itself isn't funny that really that was like that caught me off guard and I was like the fuck is going on literally in in the theater with me someone to my right a few rows down or like a few seats down was like, what the fuck? And then I heard the exact same thing from someone a few rows back to my left. That was like, what the fuck? Like it was startling. And he's just talking to her like this. And she speaks in Japanese back there. No subtitles. I only imagine her being like, you're a fucking idiot. You are so stupid. I just imagine her saying that, but you don't know what she says. And then he's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. So, so you think he understands her. Right. I'll let you see how that plays out. Uh, but like there's just weird comedy in this, too, like that, like just some random weird stuff uh, in the trailer. They do the whole thing with um, Bradley Cooper uh, about the Barbara Streisand thing, uh, how to say the last name. Uh, if you haven't seen the trailer, you don't know what I'm talking about. But that goes on for a while. And it's just like this weird thing. Um, like some of those moments are blatant comedy moments. The Japanese thing is weird. I'm still like hung up on that. Not in a bad way, 
But it's just like, the fuck is this guy? You know, again, the movie does not endorse that behavior. Like, he comes off like a complete jerk. Um, but it's just like such a weird choice. Like, I want to listen to Paul Thomas Anderson uh, talk about the movie because I want to, like, understand where that's coming from. Uh, again, it's not that I'm, like, offended or anything. I just, it's just weird. It's just like a weird, it just, like, startled me. So I was like, I cannot believe I'm seeing this. So, uh, anyways, uh, it's a weird thing. Just watch the movie. So, uh, going back here, uh, you know, there are, there's some weird humor in it. Uh, there is a lot of the same type of humor I mentioned before where the characters are just doing things that are awkward or funny. So much like Barry Egan, you know, uh, you know, he's selling these like prototype, like plungers or whatever. He's like, they're unbreakable. And then he hits a table and it breaks, uh, in this movie, you know, you get stuff like Alana running and saying, fuck you, teenagers, because they keep running into her. You know, it's this, like, it never is played as comedy, but it's, like, so funny. So there's some really funny moments. Um, I'm trying the no, not the Russo brothers. What the fuck's that guy's name? Um, I'm, like, not going to find it in time, and I'm just going to sit here and make you guys just listen to me look for it. Um Ah, oh, what it, it's the guys that did Uncut Gems. Why can't I think? The Safty Brothers. I have not found it yet because I don't know which Safty Brother it is. But one of the Safty Brothers who directed Uncut Gems, and this brother is actually in Good Times, their their film, uh, or Good Time. Um, uh, Benny Safty, yes. He plays uh, a character in this. The story, and I'm not going to ruin it for you, but the story that Benny Safdie has, uh, he plays a mayoral candidate, Joel, Wa uh, Joel Wax, I think, uh, W-A-C-H-S. And uh, that storyline is great, but the thing I love about it is how it plays out and how it influences Alana's character. Because Alana's still searching for herself, and there's a point where this interaction at a certain, like, there's a certain interaction that she has uh, with Benny Safdie's character and, and other characters that leads her to realize in that moment what she needs in life and what she loves about life. And w when that happens, I actually felt like that was like an emotional, there was like emotional resonance there for me. Um and I, I just thought that that whole sequence was great. So whenever you see the film, because I encourage you to check it out, if you watch it, the scene where Alana is, uh, I'll just say, is called by Benny Safdie's character, the mayoral candidate. How that whole scene plays out, I think, is great. I also think Cooper Hoffman as a performer is, uh, I mean, he's not his dad yet. You know, this is his first role, as far as I know. But uh, I am really excited to see if he can keep this up because Paul Thomas Anderson has really great luck with actors and he can make people that aren't that great look fucking awesome. Uh, I don't think Mark Wahlberg is that great and his best film, in my opinion, is Boogie Nights. So that's a perfect example of someone who isn't always great um, but is good. And so hopefully Cooper Hoffman is as good as he is in this movie. I really thought he did a great job. And I think, you know, hopefully he will um, he'll have a bright future. Uh, Alana Hyam, uh, I, I know about her band with her sisters. Uh, I had no idea she was 
doing movies. And whenever you look at her IMDb, it's just pretty much all just like music videos. Uh, so this is like her first thing too. So unknown actors, basically, you know, uh, she's awesome in this. She is like a pro. And I don't know, again, if it's just her straight up like hardcore skill or if it's Paul Thomas Anderson knowing how to direct human beings and make them look good. Uh, but she looks fantastic in this movie. And uh, I, I look forward to seeing her in more stuff. Sean Penn's a weirdo, of course. Tom Waits is a weirdo, of course. Um, they're great. Honestly, I feel like the Bradley Cooper thing is going to uh, take a lot of uh, people's thunder on this movie. Uh, and that was, I thought it was still really good. Um, but that's not even like the highlight to me. I'll tell you right now, for everyone that's in this movie, the highlight is Alana Hyam and Cooper Hoffman and that relationship that is basically the cornerstone of this film. Um, I think you should definitely check this out. Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, uh, I mean, knocked it out of the park again. He made another great movie. There's a reason he's my favorite living filmmaker. Um, you know, Stanley Kubrick's my favorite filmmaker of all time, but he's dead. And when you are a guy who's made There Will Be Blood, Punch Drunk Love, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, uh, The Master, Phantom Thread, like when you're making these like fucking bangers, like dude, even your worst film, which I would call Inherent Vice his worst film, is still great. You know, I mean, he's just that guy. So who's surprised? You know, Licorice Pizza is great. Um, and, and Johnny Greenwood, this is a very different Johnny Greenwood score than There Will Be Blood or The Master or earlier this year, like I said, The Power of the Dog, Johnny Greenwood did a killer score for that. It's incredible. And in this one, this one is way closer to something like the Punch Drunk Love score than it is like There Will Be Blood. And Johnny Greenwood somehow captures a, like a tension in the score while also just making it generally just beautiful. Like it's just this beautiful kind of lighthearted score, but there's like an underlying dissonance that kind of keeps you hook, line and sink. You know, like, uh, I don't, I don't know why I can't like, I think I just said that phrase, right? But anyways, like you're hooked. That's what I'm getting at. You're hooked. And I think the score plays a big role in that. I love Paul Thomas Anderson's camera work. Uh, he is also, um, the D like the director of photography, the cinematographer here. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, his camera works awesome. I, I love the movement and uh, his choices to uh, hold on certain people. One of my favorite things that he does is instead of uh, watching someone walk somewhere, cut, and then you cut to them being there, he will often just sit on those people and follow them as they go to the place they're going. So and and it often has really powerful effects. For example, uh, there's a point where Alana's walking away from from a place. She's just walking. She's a little distraught, and she starts walking a little bit faster, and then just a little bit faster, and then she's at a jog, and then she's at a sprint. Were we to cut at any point, we would lose this. But we sit there and watch her for like thirty seconds run, right? But with the music, the camera work the situation and context, her performance, it's actually like super effective. And, and this is just a perfect example. This uh, licorice pizza as uh, being made by someone who is, is just a, a master filmmaker to me. You know, I think Paul Thomas Anderson is one of the greats and um, 
he's made better films. I think Licorice Pizza is probably in the bottom three of his films still. And I, I but I like all of his movies. So I mean, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, like it's better than Heart Eight, and it's better than Inherent Vice. But he's made such incredible movies. I don't know if it's better than any others. You know, because they're all so good. Like they're at that point, they're all like five star movies to me. So uh, it's, they're kind of hard to beat. But uh, yeah, this is this is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And when you watch it, you'll feel it. And when you feel it, I hope you'll let me know what you think. Hopefully you agree with me. If you disagree or if you watch it and you agree, hit me up on uh, Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can also email me. Uh, your thoughts at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Licorice Pizza. I also gave this a four and a half out of five. So, um, you know, I'm seeing a lot of good stuff. We'll see if any of this ends up on my top 10. Um, but I'm sure some of these will probably be there if I had to guess. I'm still knocking out a whole bunch of movies, as I mentioned earlier in the episode. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. But definitely go check out. Uh, licorice pizza it is in theaters right now select theaters um i'll talk a little bit more about that in the outro uh but for now check it out i definitely recommend it paul thomas anderson rules i hope you liked it um i'll be right back All right, uh, you know, just to just in this episode, I was talking about Licorice Pizza. I was talking about it being in theaters right now. Uh, it's not streaming anywhere or anything like that right now. Just keep it on your list. You know, I, I would encourage you to make a list. Uh, but what sucks is this movie had a much wider release, and then at a certain point, theaters were like, "Yo, uh, Marvel movies make way more money," so they started pulling certain movies. In Atlanta, my uh, a very very close friend, one of my best friends. Uh, lives in Atlanta. He's uh, in a PhD program there. He wanted to go see Lurkish Pizza. It was on, like, online. It was showing. When they got there, they're like, oh, sorry, yeah, we pulled that, like, last week or whatever. Uh, because uh, Spider-Man came out, uh, No Way Home or whatever, and uh, Spider-Man's just going to make more money. So they needed to open more screens because more people are going to come see that. And they were cutting movies like Licorice Pizza. And I'm sure things like The Tragedy of Macbeth and movies like that, you know, uh, Nightmare Alley and stuff like that. And it makes sense. It sucks because during the pandemic, theaters are struggling. And I get that. But what really sucks, though, is the the movies that they're cutting are like the bread and butter of the year. You know what I mean? Like, like fuck Spider-Man. Like, I'm sure that movie rules. I haven't seen it yet. And I'm sure it's awesome. But it's like, dude, that it, it will never have the uh, power and impact that these movies have. And it just sucks. But at the same time, we live in a capitalist society and they have to make money to stay open. And I want theaters to stay open. So uh, it's just like... Um, it's a, it's a kind of, I don't know, lose-lose, or like a catch-22, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but hopefully, Licorice Pizza is playing around you. Uh, if you're in the Indiana area near Indianapolis, it is at the Keystone Arts Cinema. That is where I saw it. Uh, having said that, uh, today I talked about uh, the, I talked a little bit at the, in the intro uh, about No Sudden Move. Um, and then pretty much all of the following reviews ended up kind of sounding like that because it was a lot of uh, word vomit. It's very late right now when I'm recording this because I just like didn't have any more time. So I'm also tired. Maybe that's part of it. 
Anyways, I talked about uh, the French Dispatch. I talked about Mass, The Matrix Resurrections, uh, Come On, Come On, and Licorice Pizza. Uh, hopefully, you guys learned a little bit about uh, those movies if you didn't already know uh, quite a bit about them. Definitely go check them all out. I would say pass on The Matrix if any of them are going to get uh, cut because the rest of these movies are awesome. The French Dispatch, Mass, Come On, Come On, and Licorice Pizza, all four and a half out of fives. Um, like I said, The Matrix Resurrections was a 2 out of 5. No Sudden Move was a 4 out of 5. So they're dominantly on this episode. A lot of really good movies. Check any of them out. Let me know what you think. Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And MediumCoolPod at gmail.com. Hit me up. Let me know. Until then, good night. Good luck. Take it easy. <laughs>